Good afternoon, it's Dr Andrew Matheson here with the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. This week we're going to be running through some papers that I've been looking at rather than any one particular subject. And the first paper we're going to look at is from the Burke Group. Now, we've previously talked about some of the work that we've seen them do on iron metabolism and inflammation and how they seem to be working slowly through, trying to clarify, often using uh, some of the rowing athletes, the physiological changes that seem to be going on there. And this article was caused, sorry, it was called the impact of acute calcium intake on bone turnover markers during a training day in elite male rowers. Uh, And this was just really about calcium metabolism. And it was uh, looking more at the, can we do anything to mitigate the effects of training on uh, bone turnover, more looking at the red spit, stress fractures, And I guess their aim is to reduce stress fractures over training injuries, especially in a training group that do a lot of non-impact work and so might not get the benefits that the runners and the impact athletes do from their their hours on on their heels. And what they did was just a small number, just 16 athletes split into two groups um, just for two weeks and given a high calcium meal and a low calcium meal. And what they said is with the high calcium meal there seems to be calcium concentration seems better maintained now we talked before about the the difficulty of of things such as calcium especially when we touched on some of the iron stuff and how it's obviously we we know calcium has a huge number of uh, roles within the body and, and just measuring blood and trying to make a guess that this might be useful and increasing it might be useful um, seems seems pretty oversimplistic. Um, for a start, there's no link between calcium, no proven link between calcium in, in athletes and in this age group and, and further sort of stress injuries or bony injuries. Obviously, there's going to be, it's just a small number, so there's going to be the confounders of the fact that they're all going to have different training backgrounds, different training methods, different diets. And whilst they're all doing roughly the same training, they aren't the same people. So a, a little bit oversimplified there. And again, also back to what they had been looking at before with the hepacidin and the iron metabolism and just the, the fact that unfortunately that there is a, just such a, a link in with, with inflammation. So uh, interesting. Now, with the last ones I'd seen on Burks, I'd said, oh, I don't, this seems quite small or there's more work to do. And then the follow-up articles were absolutely fantastic. So I'm sure this will be exactly the same and there'll be some more exciting things to come. But nothing that would change anything I'm doing at the moment as far as calcium supplements with that little doctor head bell in the background reminding me about the dangers especially cardiovascular impact of long-term calcium supplementation and in people who are in slightly hotter countries the worry about stones and things that could really ruin an athlete's uh, season pretty pretty quickly. The next article was about ibuprofen, uh, that favourite of rugby players whenever I've worked with them. Uh, some athletes just seem to live on it and, and they use it as an anti-inflammatory to try and get through the season. And they're not so worried about the fact that their training might be attenuated. They need their inflammation down to get back on the pitch the next day. So this article was caused 
Ibuprofen increases markers of intestinal barrier injury, but suppresses inflammation at rest and after exercise in hypoxia. So they were looking at the hypoxic environment uh, and the, the markers they found and what they showed was very much what we'd expect, that seems to suppress some markers of inflammation, but signs of intestinal uh, barrier damage. And what I'm wondering about this is if this might, the next thing might not be an altitude, might be at heat. And there it might be much more interesting, interesting to see how the interaction of the hypothermia and the effect on the intestinal barrier, the ibuprofen and the overall inflammatory markers might be, and whether or not actually ibuprofen in higher hot and hypothermic training environments it might mean that the intestinal damage means that actually any, any benefit you get is completely out the window. Um, so again, nothing I'm going to change, but another one where I think I'm just keeping an eye on what's going there. Uh, the next one was, well, I, I'm, I, I'm a rower by background, um, rode uh, under 23 GB team a long time ago. And so when rowing's my love, um, if I could be out on the, on the water rowing all day, I would do. Um, unfortunately, I can't because I have a mortgage to pay and uh, I have a back that doesn't work very well. But uh, I do love to keep on top of what's going on, and this one's not so much nutrition, but did make me think there's going to be some interesting questions uh, to answer from a nutrition and training point of view for, for some of the rowing teams. So it's called, it was in Human Kinetic Journals, rowing in, uh, sorry, it was in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, part of the Human Kinetics Journals, rowing in Los Angeles, performance considerations for the change to 1,500 metres at the 2028 Olympic Games. And so this is the idea that they're dropping the distance rowers have to compete over by a quarter. So from around six minutes, six and a half minutes, we'll be down to about four minutes, which they're going to have to start thinking about soon because if you are, if in general, it probably takes eight years to train up uh, uh, someone to be an Olympic athlete. Now they need to be starting to focus the training on 1,500 meters. And this just talks through some of the different changes that they'll have to take into account and, and what they might wish to do. But It'll be very tough for, for people who are having to compete in 2,000 metres at the moment, but keep their eye on the sort of long-term 2028 ball and um, take a few bad performances up till 2028 and then hopefully get the gold. But yeah, I, I don't envy the uh, physiologists. Well, I do, which will be fascinating, but there's, there's going to have to be some big gambles, I think, if you want gold. Uh, the next article was also from the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. It was Tramadol and Cycling is at the end of a painful relationship, an insight from 60,000 doping control samples 2012 to 2020. And the bottom line is what they said is cyclists are taking a little bit less Tramadol. I mean, cyclists can get Tramadol just by asking for a TUE if they've got an injury, so I'm not quite sure why they were focusing on it so much. And I, they they said is the reduction due to improvements in doping. Um, I have to say I think it's probably going to be more due to the fact that um, in general tramadol use is dropping because people are quite worried about um, serotonin syndromes and things like that, and we're we're probably all prescribing a little less of it. But I could be wrong, um, and maybe maybe they're they're starting to change a culture there, um, but. I suppose it's 
where will I take use from it? I think I'll, I'll be more aware that past cyclists might have used tramadol a lot um, and make sure I'm, when I talk to them about what painkillers they might use, especially as they may be using from being young and competitive to slightly older and competitive, uh, a, a chat about why things like tramadol maybe aren't the, that shouldn't be the first choice. The uh, next articles were on uh, a variety of the the, in, the sort of changes that we see with exercise, and we, we've often talked about on this podcast this idea that chronic exercise and chronic high intensity training leads to some really weird illnesses and probably isn't very good for you for a number of reasons whether or not we would previously talked about the mitochondrial damage it causes the fact that the diet seems to be very linked with insulin resistance and um, it just nothing good happens inside you at a cellular level um, with these very long years of hard training and, and hard eating uh, this was called, uh, it was in, what was it in? It was in um, sports medicine. And it was, could repeated cardiorenal injury trigger late cardiovascular sequelae in extreme endurance athletes? And again, just asking that same question, um, I was quite excited to read it. I thought it would be really interesting to get a breakdown of, of what actually the, the step from the mitochondrial and insulin things are through to to the actual what I see clinically uh, unfortunately it was a little bit uh, I thought it missed the mark a little bit and didn't really include any of the more interesting research that's coming out and focus much more on the kind of things that we've known about a long time that getting very dehydrated from time to time is probably not great for your kidneys um, having myocardial changes that we see in extreme athletes make you more likely to get dysrhythmias and then just a small bit on mitochondria towards the end and then nothing really on insulin resistance and the the diets that athletes have over a long period of time so uh i had been excited to read but that that was definitely letting me a little disappointed um i found the next article was much more more, more interesting um it's called IL-6 signaling in acute exercise and chronic training, potential consequences for health and athletic performance. And that was in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sport. And I, I didn't quite think it, it, it answered the questions that I wanted, which is essentially I wanted something that would tell me how I could look at these exercise and inflammation articles that come out using IL, things like IL-6 um, and either understand them better or understand how they're flawed. It didn't quite get all the way with that, but I have to say it did do, do quite a nice start on it and talked about how it, essentially there's almost these two very, uh, on the surface of it, seems sort of opposite effects of IL-6. So it, we know in acute inflammation it's seen to, to rise in, in, in there's more signaling with IL-6 in, in sepsis and in chronic inflammation. Um, uh, but then we also are aware that it's um, required for sort of AMPK and all those things and imp improving mitochondria in, in exercise. Uh, and it just talks th through some of the ways that we now understand that and some of the gene losses that have allowed us to find out a bit more. But it didn't, for me, really break down into uh, um, exactly where IL-6 is going and, and focused a bit too much, if I'm being honest, on IL-6. And, and maybe that's, that, that's not quite what we need to be looking at. We need to be 
IL-6 is just a, uh, a signaling molecule in, in wider pathways. And, and I think I'm still waiting for that, that article that, break, that, that gives me a, a nice big picture of what are the wider pathways we're seeing. The uh, next article was on beetroot juice. Uh, so it was saying no effect, it was called No Effect of Nitrate Rich Beetroot Juice on Microvascular Function, Blood Pressure in Younger and Older Individuals, a Randomized Placebo Controlled Double Blind Pilot Study. It was in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And uh, first officer Rogerson, last officer Klonaxis. Uh, and they were looking at trying to get a blood pressure effect in young and older individuals three hours after having a reasonable whack of beetroot. Um, it was 6.4 uh, millimoles. Um, I think I would probably approach this from the other way, that I think a very reasonable question is beetroot works on um, uh, sort of nitrate pathways. Is there going to be a side effect of giving that to my athletes in quite a large dose just before they do some hard training? Could it drop their blood pressure? I don't want someone who's who might have to stand up for a prolonged period and then do straining um, to keel over because I've dropped their blood pressure and not do well in their event. So I would, I think this would be reassuring for me and, and how it will change my practice is I'd be much more confident in recommending beetroot juice um, and not have that little worry at the back of my head that oh maybe it's a bit like having a popper and you're suddenly going to keel over um, or sildenafil or um, a GTN spray or any of those things it clearly doesn't have that as quick an effect as those. The next article was on zinc. Um, now, this is well, zinc's one of those ones where you think, "Oh, nothing I read makes me think we have any understanding about zinc." This was called "Influence of Physical Training on Intracellular and Extracellular Zinc Concentrations," and it was in the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition. And zinc is being talked about a lot, especially with COVID. Do you need to up your zinc? We noticed that we've always known, and people with sepsis, they seem to have lower zinc bit of a dispute in the microbiology world that is that because the body tries to lower the zinc because it knows the bacteria need zinc or is it the fact that people with low zinc get ill and end up on intensive care and we know in general people with bad covid seem to have had lower zinc much as they seem to have had lower vitamin d but what does that mean um and what i liked about this was it just talked about the fact that none of the studies really seem to be very helpful and they were just rather than just doing blood zinc they thought we're going to look in a few other compartments and see if that makes any difference and they think they found um, actually some significant changes in concentrations in erythrocytes so I'm sure it's just the start there'll be lots more to come uh, but really interesting and really thoughtful article so I, I did enjoy that and the last articles it was in science, uh, and it was called Variation in Human Water and Turnovers Associated with Environmental and Lifestyle Factors. Uh, and it was just someone had tried, uh, and rather successfully, to figure out, depending on someone's socioeconomic status, physical activity, sex, where they're from, um, and they were looking mostly at development index because it was uh, more about water um, and how we're going to manage with low water in the future. But actually, for, for people like us that 
may work with a variety of different athletes from all over the world. Is there a difference in how people use water depending on where they're from and who they are? And is there anywhere we can go to get a, a kind of well, this is this is the sort of standard equations and this is this is a good starting point? Uh, obviously, we can just test the athletes, but if you haven't got the opportunity to do that, where do you go? Uh, and actually, this this was this was interesting and, and did give some equations that you could use if you wanted to to take a stab stab in the dark. So that's uh, that's me for today. Um, hope you've had a great new year, and we'll chat soon. Thanks very much. Bye.